There's an old story that's told about two partners who went into business together as butchers. And they became very, very wealthy off of that business. They had a huge clientele. People came by all the time. And they just made a whole lot of money. And then finally, one day, a traveling preacher came through town and began to hold a, a weeks-long meeting. And one of those business partners decided to go to the services and kept going night after night after night. And one night decided that message was correct. He needed to become a Christian. And so one evening, he did just that. As a lot of new Christians do, he was so excited by this newfound faith that he started just telling people. He went back to his business the next day and began to tell his business partner what he had done, that, that he had become a Christian and, and you need to become a Christian too. But his business partner wasn't so sure. In fact, he absolutely was against the idea of even going to, to the meeting, much less becoming a Christian. And then the man who was now a Christian asked, why? why? Why don't you want to do that? The non-Christian said, if I go and become a Christian, then who's going to weigh the meat? Now, some of you will get that later. But what that butcher realized was that change is necessary. We call that repentance. And repentance is hard. I want us to think this morning about, as Gary mentioned, that topic of repentance. It really is one of those drumbeats of Scripture. The law of Moses continually called God's people to repentance. Later in the Old Testament, the prophets over and over and over again called for God's people to return to God to repent. John the Baptist's message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus took that same message early in His ministry and gave the same message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. On the day we sometimes call the birthday of the church, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when Peter was asked, what shall we do? The first word out of his mouth was repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. And then the letters we read in the New Testament, over and over again, call people to repentance. But what does it mean? We use that word a whole lot of times in church. We throw it around a lot of times. But what does it mean? Well, it, it does at its most basic level mean change, to change one's mind. If you were to look it up in a, a dictionary, you might see something like to change the mind with understanding. In other words, my mind isn't just changed because I feel something. Now, I, I could change a lot of things just on some emotional thing, but to change the mind with understanding, which implies something and it also states something. What it states, of course, is I have to understand something. I have to understand my sin. I have to understand what God's Word is. I have to understand what it is I need to do to repent. What's implied is really more than just changing the mind, however. You've probably heard repentance defined as a change of mind that leads to a change in action or an attitude. And that's a good way of defining it. Because Christianity over and over again, reminds us that the inward must display itself in the outward. In other words, it, we can't just change our thinking and not change our actions and our words and be pleasing to God and vice versa. We can't just change our actions and not change our heart and be pleasing to God. So it's a change of mind that leads to a change of attitude. But it's not easy. Because change is not easy. And what I want to do this morning is, is two things. I want you to turn your Bibles back to Luke chapter 13. 
And I want us to spend some time examining those five verses we read together a few moments ago, because I think sometimes we, we sort of quote verse 3 and verse 5, which are the same verse. So by the way, young people who are doing Centurion Scripture for last leaders, there's two verses in one, hint, hint. But sometimes we just quote verse 3 and verse 5, and we don't always really see what's going on that brings that famous statement about repentance up. And I want us to, to examine that text. And then having done that, I want us to turn to a practical side and think about some reasons why this is difficult. We'll break these five verses down into three parts. And then having done that, we'll make three practical reasons. But first of all, let's take some time to examine the command, to examine this text in Luke chapter 13. As you go with the text, first of all, you're going to see two tragic situations. If the things that are being talked about in these verses weren't so tragic and, and that sort of thing, do you not find the first, just the very introduction to the chapter almost charming in a way? Here's what I mean. Not, not what's reported to Jesus, but do you see that these people who were there feel so comfortable with Jesus and so close to Jesus that they just kind of start talking about the news? They, they, they ask him this question about these, these Galileans. It's, it's almost like they're saying, hey, let's just talk about something that happened you know, in our culture some time ago. We don't have any biblical record other than this report of it, of this particular event. You may find it interesting that you can go through secular history and not find any particular report about this happening where these Galileans have their blood sprinkled on their sacrifice ordered by Pilate. But what is interesting is even though you're not going to find a secular historian who has some big, long recording of it, you're also not going to find anyone who would argue that it ever happened. Because that's just the way sometimes these Roman leaders dealt with things. Sometimes it was hands-off and sometimes it was very hands-on. Whatever it took to keep the peace, that's what they were going to do. But the tragic situation brought up there obviously was one that was murderous, but it was also offensive. When these Galileans who were bringing their sacrifice and they were murdered, their blood was sprinkled with their sacrifice or on their sacrifice. It defiled the law of Moses to have human blood intermingled with the sacrifice and all those things. So obviously, the, we might say, quote-unquote, the worst part of it is the murder, but you also have just this offensive thing going on. But the key to it is that you have something of human agency. Either Pilate did it or had it done, likely he had it done, where just this evil comes out and causes this horrible tragedy to happen. That's what they ask about. But then Jesus takes the conversation a little further in verse 4 and gives another situation, another tragic situation, that they would have known about. We don't know exactly when it happened. But it could have been all that long ago because he just talks about it as if they knew what was going on, where this Tower of Siloam falls. That tower likely was just inside the southeastern portion of the wall of Jerusalem. And the reason scholars seem to agree on that is because that's the part of the city where the pool of Siloam was. And so probably that entire section had things named after Siloam in it. But I think the key to it is simply that it fell. In other words, you don't have anything about a war going on and someone knocking this tower over. It doesn't even seem necessarily like some kind of earthquake or something happened. You have maybe bad engineering, I don't know. Maybe just the weathering of time and people not keeping up with it. I don't know what's going on. But this tower just falls. 
and 18 people who it would seem were just going about their everyday business, if I may just say it, were crushed to death in that particular accident, tragic situation, whatever you want to call it. Think about those two tragedies. The first was human agency. Pilate and some of his cohorts, it would seem, just evil coming out and just murdering these people, quite literally, in cold blood. The second was just something that happened. No war, no people, just the tower fell. Do we still face those kind of tragedies now? Oh, yeah. Both kinds, all the time, it seems. Sometimes people get hurt, harmed, and killed because people are evil. Sometimes people get hurt, hurt, harmed, or killed because things happen. And it's nobody's quote-unquote fault, or it's not intentionally someone's fault. But you have two tragic situations. And then Jesus takes that in the second place to give a teaching on tragedy. He asks very similar questions, following up both of those things. If you look at the question he asked, following up the one about Pilate, verse 2, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. Here are people who are coming to bring sacrifice. Here are people who are coming to do something. And now they're, they're murdered. They're, they're cut down right there doing that. Do you think they were worse sinners because that's the end of what happened to them? And then Jesus, after he talks about that tower falling, asks a very similar question at the uh, end of verse 4. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. I don't want to add to what Jesus said, but we might even say not just the ones who lived in Jerusalem, the ones who just happened to be in Jerusalem. I mean, here were some people just going about their everyday business and a tower fell. Jesus is saying, do you think these people were worse? Now, before you get to his answer, before your brain just jumps to his answer, put yourself in their shoes for a second, the ones who were listening to Jesus talk. Is it not possible that their snap reaction might have been, yes. Why do I say that? You ever have something bad happen in your life and think, God, what did I do wrong to deserve this? You ever see a tragedy happen somewhere in the world and think, well, those people deserve it. They're terrible. I think sometimes... Maybe those who are listening to Jesus, and maybe even some of us today, need to reread the book of Job. Here was a man who, the opening parts of the book tell us, not just he was wealthy, but he was a, just a sterling example of what it meant to be faithful to God. And then all of this horrible stuff happens. Scholars like to call the, the theory that kind of undergirds that book retribution theory. That, that's what they call it, because they like to use big fancy words. But all that, that theory, all that teaching means is that if I have good health and wealth and blessings and all those sorts of things, then it's obviously because I've done a whole lot of righteous things and God is blessing me with, with all this earthly stuff and health because of that. And on the flip side of that, if I lose my health or I lose money or I go through a series of, of bad and unfortunate events, it's obviously because I'm a sinner and the worst things that happen to me is because I'm a worse and worse and worse sinner. That's what undergirds that entire book. Read the speeches the friends of Job gave, and it's obvious that's what they believed. And by the way, read the speeches that Job gave, at least the first part of the book, and I think he believed it too. 
And it's possible that what Jesus is doing when He asks these questions in verse 2 and verse 4 of our text, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the book of Job, was to make them think, hang on a second, here are people, the first situation, who were going to offer sacrifices to God. And they were murdered. And then here are some people who are just, let's just say, going about their everyday business. Maybe they're at the pool salon, maybe they're in the marketplace, I don't know. And, and a tower fell over. Did that happen because they were worse sinners than anybody else? And Jesus, just in case they needed a response, gave it. I tell you, no. This did, these situations did not happen because these were the worst of the worst. These were the riffraff of all riffraff. These were sinners upon sinners upon sinners. And somebody's thinking, Adam, I thought this was a sermon on repentance. And so far we talked about people being murdered and towers falling on people. That's where Jesus gives us something worse than a tragedy. After He made that statement, I tell you no, then He gives a spiritual application based upon those two, let's just call them news items. Unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Now Jesus was obviously not literally saying, if I don't repent, I'm going to be murdered. If I don't repent, a tower is going to fall on top of me. He's not giving a literal statement of, if I don't repent, these two specific horrible things are going to happen. He is taking something that was obviously on the minds of those people of his day and time, these news items, you want to think of it that way, that were just absolute tragedies and saying, there is something else that you need to think about. And you think, wait a minute, I thought you said this was something worse than a tragedy. It is. Here's what I mean. If those people went to offer the sacrifices that day in the, in the temple, those Galileans, first one, if they would have known there was some plot for their life, either they wouldn't have gone that day, or they would have armed themselves, or they would have turned in the people, or some, they would have done something to thwart being murdered. That's just obvious. If I know that a tower is about to fall over on that particular day, guess what part of the town I'm not visiting that day? I can live without some pomegranates for a day. I don't have to go to the market. They didn't know these things were going to happen. But I know my life is not going to last forever. I know I'm going to die. Or I know my Lord is coming back before I die. I know those things are true. I absolutely, 100% know that that's true. And knowing those things are true, how then could I face God in judgment unprepared when I've known all along I was supposed to be preparing for that day? These people that went to offer their sacrifice, these people that were in the market or the pool or whatever it was, they didn't know what that day held. It was just any other day. Just like it could be any other day for me. But I know how to prepare myself. Unless I change, repent, I'll perish. And probably everybody in this room and everybody watching on live stream goes, Adam, we know that. I mean, 
at the end of a whole lot of sermons, we'll run through the plan of salvation. Sometimes these are the verses we'll quote. We'll, we'll talk about, you know, we're hearing and repenting. We get to repenting, we'll say Luke 13, 3 and Luke 13, 5. Unless you repent, you'll perish and we'll go right on. We, we know those verses are there. And I know, I know that it's real. But it still comes back to the fact that even though I know it's real, it's hard. Because it's change. And change is hard. We looked at the text under three points. You could add to this list, but let me give you three reasons why repentance is hard. First of all, repentance is hard because of sin's allure. If sin weren't so tempting, it wouldn't be that hard to change away from it, to move away from it. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, in a text dealing with Moses, you might recall that talks about Moses not enjoying the, the pleasures of sin. Now I know, I know, the text goes on to say that the pleasures are passing, or some translations have for a season. They're fleeting. But just for a moment, leave that phrase off in your mind and, keep, and just put in your mind the thought that the Bible is honest enough to tell us that sin has a pleasure attached to it. That Moses saw there was pleasure in sin. When I was a youth minister a long time ago, I would try to illustrate to our young people this way. I would say, you know, if stapling a hundred pieces of paper together for 23 hours a day were a sin, not too many of us would be tempted to sin. That's just not the way it works. But sin has an allure to it. That's why a few verses later, we, we have chapters and verses. The Hebrews writer just wrote something. But what we know is just a few verses later in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he talks about the sin that clings so closely. You and I each probably have one of those, if not more than one of those. And what, what clings so closely to you may not cling so closely to me and vice versa. Here, here's what I mean. I, I may know somebody who, who is a Christian, but who struggles and struggles and struggles with, with, with alcohol, social drinking. It just gives me a way to get my buddies and it just you know calms my nerves for a little while. And I may look at that and I think, I've never even thought once about tasting that stuff. And they may go, yeah, but I've heard how you talk when you get angry. And the way you use foul language and those sorts of things, you get angry, that doesn't, that doesn't tempt me at all. When I get angry, I don't, do any, I don't act that way. What clings so closely to me may not cling so closely to you and vice versa. But sin has an allure to it. You think about that list of 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. There is an allure to sin. And giving it up can be really, really, really hard. There was a book written a few years ago called A View from the Zoo. And in that book, the writer, who was not an animal person, he was just along for a, a trip. But he got the privilege of being, <laughs> I'll put privilege in quotation marks, because I wouldn't want to do this. But he got the privilege of being in a group that was asked to come in and milk a cobra. Now, if you don't know what that means, it means they got the venom out of the fangs, which is something I never want to do as long as I live. That is not a temptation. But he said what was interesting was this particular cobra was so large and the species of it was, was so venomous that they were told that that snake that they were milking had enough venom inside of it to kill a thousand people. 
Now, how'd they get rid of the, the venom? The snake's jaws, of course, you know they can do all that weird stuff. They can unhinge their jaws. It's really scary and freaky. They actually were able to put an entire roll of paper towels inside the mouth of the snake. It bit down, and the paper towel roll was saturated through. But they said when that was done, it was finished being milked. Job over, right? No. Their guide told them, letting go is when more people get bit. Because they've let their guard down. I want to suggest to you that when it comes to repentance, that's true. I know I need to. But sometimes letting go is the hardest part. Number two, repentance is also hard because of failure's shame. It's change, which means I have to tell my God I failed. And I don't like doing that. I don't like admitting when I'm wrong. Leah, don't amen that. I don't like admitting when I'm wrong. And I for sure don't like admitting I'm wrong to my God. And sometimes because of the shame of having to say, I have sinned, I am wrong, I have done this, or I have not done that, people just simply cannot get past actually repenting. You might think of Judas Iscariot. Before, before we have him betraying Jesus, the Bible had already told us he was a thief, that he used to take money from the, the bag that ostensibly was used to, to fund the, the ministry of Jesus. But that continued to stay with him until he sold Jesus for that pittance, 30 pieces of silver. And it ended up costing his physical and spiritual life because of not being able to say, I've sinned. You might also think of Herod, one of the Herods, the one who had that girl who danced at his party, and then he said, I'll give you whatever you want to half the kingdom. And then at the behest of her mother, she said, well, then that's easy enough. Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter, on a charger. The right thing to do would have been to say, hang on, I shouldn't have said what I said a moment ago. I was wrong in that. I didn't mean something that crazy, something that murderous. Pick something else. But instead of being man enough to say, I was wrong because there are people around, he couldn't bring himself to say, I failed, I messed up, and John the Baptist lost his life. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8, John the Baptist told those around him that they need to have fruits worthy of repentance. May I suggest to you that one of the first fruits of repentance is the ability to say, this is a sin, that this is wrong that I have failed. But sometimes due to the shame of failure, people just cannot get over the hump and actually admit it. And number three, repentance is hard also because of reconciliation's sting. I have to face somebody. And I have to admit face to face with them that I've hurt them that I've wronged them. What, what if they don't forgive me? What if they never forgive me? 
What if, what if they say, okay, I hear what you're saying, but here's step A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way through about triple Z that you've got to do in order to earn my forgiveness. What if they put so many things on me that it's, it's a burden too great for me to bear? That might happen. But sometimes we build so many of these what-ifs in our minds that we don't actually go through the process of trying. And the fact of the matter is, even if it is never the same again with that person, it can be right with God, and that's what matters. What if it's never the same again with my spouse? What if it's never the same again with that dear friend? What if it's never the same again with a brother or sister in Christ? It may not be. But it can be right with God. I think Peter understood that. I can't prove it. But don't you know that those times when he denied Jesus over and over and over again, don't you know they probably just stung in his mind the rest of his life? I can't prove that from the Bible. But just from human understanding, don't you know sometimes that had to flash back in his mind? And yet Jesus came to Peter and restored him. Peter was ashamed. But Jesus restored him. In 1981... There was an interesting police bulletin that went out. In fact, it went out in a whole lot of places around the country, not, not even just where it was. It went out all over the place. And I hate to say all it was, but you don't usually see this stuff nationwide, especially in the days before the Internet and stuff. But it was a radio bulletin that went out all across the country for a stolen car. And it wasn't a celebrity's stolen car. It wasn't even a very expensive car. It wasn't a very nice car, to be honest with you. It was just a car. But the reason... There was a bulletin across the country was because the car that was stolen had a box of crackers inside of it. So what? Oh, you see, the owner of the car lived in a dangerous neighborhood. And so he put a box of crackers in the car in case it was stolen that were laced with poison that would almost instantly kill someone who consumed them. And so the bulletin went out across the country, not really to try to get back a piece of stolen property, but to try to save the life of the thief. I want to suggest to you that when we fail to repent, we are like a thief. We are trying to run from something and not realizing all the while what's killing us is right there. It's right there. And what's killing us is our unwillingness to say, I've sinned and I change. I can't prove it from Luke chapter 13, but I believe Peter was there when Jesus said those words. Can't prove it. He's on the list who was there. It just says those who were there. But considering he was an apostle, you'd have to almost have to think he was there. If he wasn't, he heard about it. Here's why I say that. I think Peter got the message of Luke chapter 13. How do I know that? Because when Jesus said, Repent or you'll perish, Peter seems to bring that teaching forward over and over and over again. For example, 
If you're not a Christian this morning, it was Peter who said, Repent and be baptized. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. In many ways, the harder step is first. Because if I'm willing to say, I've sinned, I'm wrong, but God, what will you have me to do? Be baptized? You better believe I'll be baptized. That's, yes, if God is willing to forgive me, absolutely. But what about for the vast majority of us in this room who already are Christians? Is it still necessary? Oh yeah, it is. It was Peter later in life, who in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, said, The Lord is not slow concerning His promise, as some count slowness, but is long-suffering toward you. Who's the you in that passage? Folks, read 2 Peter. He's not talking to non-Christians. 2 Peter is addressed to Christians. The Lord is not slow concerning His promise, as some count slowness, but is long-suffering toward you. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There are times where even as a Christian, I have to be able to say, I've sinned. I was wrong. But I'm changing. Is it hard? Oh, absolutely it's hard. But is it worth it? Considering heaven is the home of the faithful, you better believe it's worth it. Do you need to repent and be baptized? Do you need to repent so that God can hold His into the promise and restore you? If so, will you come? I'll be saying it's safe to encourage you.